The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and was recorded at Westminster Chapel in Toronto. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of life, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's been so good to see some of you at our morning prayer meetings that we have on Zoom and the communion sessions we've been enjoying on Sunday. These have been a great blessing to me. But let me say that they only increase my longing to be together with you all. Well, this morning we're going to wrap up our series, our More Than Conqueror series. Next week we'll be returning, Lord willing, to our study in Second Samuel, and Pastor Joe will be leading us through the 12th chapter. So I encourage you to read that and discuss it so that you are prepared. Well, it's been a difficult week in the news with images of riots, burning buildings, and a nation torn apart by racial tensions. And all this in the face of an already tenuous situation with ongoing lockdowns and the toll they are taking on all of us emotionally, physically, economically, and in many other ways. As I reflected on this, a scene from The Lord of the Rings came to mind. Frodo and Gandalf are sitting together in a dark cave. And Frodo is reflecting on all the evil that has come upon him and the danger that continues to stalk him at every step. And he says wearily to Gandalf, I wish none of this had happened. To which Gandalf wisely replies, So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Well, maybe this week you're feeling a bit like Frodo, sitting in a dark cave, despairing over your situation, feeling weary and discouraged and wishing that none of this had happened. And you know, at some level, we acknowledge that God is in control and has a purpose for all of this. But what that purpose could be sometimes seems so beyond us that it's hard to find comfort in this. But are God's purposes completely beyond our comprehension? You know, I don't think so. I believe that he has left us clues in his word that can help us understand, at least in part, his purposes in a time like this. I believe that God is working out his purposes and giving us opportunities that we would never have had had none of this happen. So today I want us to gather insight together from God's word on the purpose of trials. And who better to learn that from than the Apostle Paul, of whom the Lord had said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so how fitting that the Spirit of God uses his servant Paul to teach us this. Now this morning I want us to consider three purposes of trial. Number one, to manifest the life of Christ in us. Number two, to prepare us an eternal reward. And number three, to commend us as ministers of the gospel. Now, before we consider these things, we need to anchor this fourth chapter in its context. And as with so many other things in this letter to the Corinthians, the context is a question that had been raised by some of Paul's critics. The question is not recorded, but it's reasonable to surmise that it might have been something like this. So where are Paul's letters of recommendation? We have letters, glowing letters that speak of our credentials. Where are Paul's letters? 
the implication. If he doesn't have them, maybe you should be listening to us, not him. Well, Paul addressed this by reminding them of a scene in the Old Testament. It was that glorious moment when Moses, for the second time, descended from the mountain where he had met with God, bearing with him two tablets of stone upon which were written the Ten Commandments engraved by the finger of God. Now, there could have been no doubt in anyone's mind that Moses' message was from God. But just suppose someone had asked him the same question that Paul's critics were asking of Paul. Where are your letters of recommendation? What is the proof that you have been with God? Well, Moses would only have needed to hold up those tablets of stone. Now, Paul uses that illustration to help the Corinthians respond to these critics. He says to them, Moses' letters of recommendation were tablets of stone engraved with the finger of God. My letter of recommendation is you. It's not a letter written with ink, but by the Spirit of God. It's not a letter written on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. If tablets of stone written with the finger of God were Moses' letters of recommendation, a people with a new heart and a new spirit, a people with the Holy Spirit, a people upon whose heart God had written his law were Paul's letters of recommendation. The Corinthian church, despite all their issues, were a changed people because God's law was written upon their heart. And that change validated Paul as a minister of the new covenant. Now, the Corinthians might have thought, how do our lives validate Paul's ministry and message? Look at the mess we're in. Look at the things we've done. That may be true of the church of Philippi or Ephesus, but not us. And you might think that about yourself. How does my life manifest the glory of God? I have so many struggles. I I fail so often. You know, when Moses came down from that mountain, it was not only the tablets of stone he carried that proved that he had been with God. There was something else. His face shone. We read that in 2 Corinthians 3, and we read it in Exodus 34. But you know, he was unaware of it. He did not know until Aaron and the people saw him, and they were afraid and would not come near. So Moses had to put a veil over his face. Just like Moses, you may not be aware that your face shines, but having the Holy Spirit within you and God's law written on your heart makes your face shine and people notice it. They notice that your life is governed by a different law. They notice that you have a different outlook. They may not know what it is, but they know something is different, even if you don't. And there are consequences to that. In the case of Moses, it made him the most sought-after man within the camp of Israel. A man that has face-to-face contact with God is a man in high demand. But it also drove people away from him, for they were afraid. And it will do that to you as well, you know. It will put, it will both put you in demand and also drive people away. So what do you do about it? Well, you know what Moses did about it? He put a veil over his face to hide the glory of God. But the Apostle Paul says, we're not going to do that. We're not going to cover up the evidence that our ministry is from God. We're going to let it shine in full force by the open statement of truth combined with godliness and sincerity. To do otherwise would give people the opportunity to question the source of our ministry. But there's something else here. When Moses went back into the presence of the Lord, he would remove the veil and again the presence of God would transform him. 
The longer Moses spent in the presence of the Lord, the more his face shone. And is this not true of us as well? God has shone in our hearts, and people do see a difference, whether you realize it or not. Be encouraged by that. But it is also true that the more you live your life in open communion with God, enjoying his presence, feeding upon his word, lifting up your heart in praise to him, the more your face will shine. Now, as ministers of the gospel, we are not to veil that glory. Now, that gives us the context of this fourth chapter. In that context, let's consider God's purpose in trial. First, to manifest the life of Christ in us. So Paul starts off the fourth chapter by saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. By not losing heart and by a faithful and sincere proclamation of the gospel, we pull off the veil so that the light within us shines out in this ever-darkening world. Now, even though we might shine our light into the dark world, there is still the problem that Satan, the god of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. But God overcame that darkness in us, just as he did in the world on the first day of creation when he said, let there be light. So God is able to remove the veil of unbelief that has been cast upon the minds of the perishing. But we must remove the veil covering our own testimony so that the light that he has placed within us points the way. At one of D.L. Moody's meetings in America, he told the story of a ship that was approaching the harbor in Cleveland on a dark and stormy night. The captain knew that there was a great lighthouse that marked the location of the harbor. But there were lights along the shore called lower lights to help navigate the dangerous waters into the harbor. But as they drew near, the captain saw only one light, that of the lighthouse. So he asked the pilot, are you quite sure that this is the Cleveland Harbor? The pilot responded that it was. Then where are the lower lights? asked the captain. Gone out, sir. Can we make the harbor then? asked the captain. The pilot replied, we must, sir, or perish. The brave captain steered the ship toward the lighthouse, but in the inky darkness missed the channel and struck the rocks. That night, many lives were lost in the stormy waters. After telling the story, Moody made this appeal to his audience. Brothers, the master will take care of the great lighthouse. Let us keep the lower lights burning. So removing the veil that hides our witness is a serious matter. That our lives might hinder the gospel is a very real danger, for though that light is brilliant, God has chosen to place it in jars of clay. Those jars of clay are you and me. What happens when you put a brilliant light in a jar that's made of clay? Well, you can only see the light through the cracks, and herein is the first purpose for suffering, that it might produce cracks through which the light may shine out. And so we have in chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, 
but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You know, some of my kids have had the privilege in the past of going to a camp near Jackson Hole, Wyoming, up in the Teton Mountains. And you can imagine it's a breathtaking setting for a camp, and it's been a tremendous experience for them. But the one thing that is always the highlight for them is being there with the man who runs the camp because he has been such an inspiration to them in the way he reflects Christ through his kindness, patience, and love. I haven't yet had the privilege of meeting him. This man makes his living by creating beautiful chainsaw art, sculptures of wildlife, particularly bears, incredibly lifelike, and his work is well known and sought after. Just recently, he was away from home when he received a frantic call from his wife. She delivered to him the crushing news that his workshop was ablaze. Everything in it destroyed. Projects that he'd been working on for months, even years. A couple of dozen chainsaws reduced to puddles of steel. Everything gone. He recorded the story on a video that I watched, and in it he said that after hanging up the phone, all he could say was, Lord. And then he said the Lord brought the words of a song to his mind, a song that reminded him that his real treasure was not in that workshop, but rather laid up for him in heaven. Now, when I heard that story, I thought to myself, now that's someone I'm willing to listen to. It's one thing to tell people all about the hope and peace and joy you have in Christ when everything in your life is ticking along nicely. But if you can sing when your whole livelihood has been reduced to ashes and rubble, then I want to hear what you have to say. I want to know what makes you tick. Why? Because I see a glorious light peeking through the cracks in your life. I see that while you're afflicted, somehow you're never crushed. I see that while you're perplexed, like the rest of us, you're never driven to despair. I see that while you're persecuted, you're not his one who is forsaken. It's the life of Christ being manifest in your mortal flesh. So trials and difficulties produce the cracks through which the light of Christ in us shines out. Let's not veil that light through a life of murmuring, complaining, time-wasting, and self-seeking. Let's not resist the process that produces the cracks, for it is through these that our Lord shines light and hope to a world that is so desperately in need. That's one reason why the Lord allows these trials and affliction. Now, let's move on to the second purpose. He allows trials to shift our focus from the transient to the eternal. In the 16th to 18th verse of our chapter, the apostle says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Most of us are conditioned to evaluate what is real through our sense of sight. 
So it is difficult for us to be motivated by the unseen other than by God's great gift of faith. That is why without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those without faith live only for what they can relate to through their senses. But even in those who live by faith, that faith must be exercised, or we too can find ourselves living only for that which is transient. And so it is through the agency of trials and afflictions that our eyes are turned from the temporal to the eternal. And that is what we get in the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now this is not so that we can retreat from life and just wait for the Lord to come and take us out of this mess. On the contrary, it is so that we do not waste the opportunities that we have in time. Opportunities that will not, that we will not have in eternity. And we see this in the fifth chapter in verses nine and ten. So whether we are at home or away, <clears throat> we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. <clears throat> now, as you know, every believer will stand before the judgment seat, but it is not our sins that are judged here. The sins of those who stand before this judgment seat have already been borne by Christ, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the judgment here is for reward or loss of reward, and it is according to what you have done in the body, that is your earthly body, it is only in your earthly, temporal body that you can earn eternal rewards. Think about that. It is only in this life that you can invest in eternal rewards. That should be a real motivation for us. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, we read, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Is your treasure here or there? Answer that question and I'll tell you where your heart is. How many of us can truly say that our hearts, our affections, our desires, our hopes, our ambitions are in heaven? Paul could. He had seen heaven. He had been caught up to the third heaven and seen things too wonderful to utter. And that was where his hopes, dreams, and ambitions lay. And consequently, he labored more than any other servant of the Lord because that day when he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ was always before him. Now, the Lord knows the cares and desires of this life can keep our hearts from laying up treasures in heaven. And he loves us too much to let us continue on this path and incur eternal loss of reward. And so in his mercy, he allows trials to refocus us on that which is unseen and eternal. As someone has once said, when our eyes are filled with tears, we can better see the day when tears will be. No more. So let's review where we've been. God uses trials so that his glory may shine through our brokenness. He uses trials to refocus us from the temporal to the eternal and thereby secure for us eternal reward. Let's talk about our last point. God uses trials to commend us as ministers of the gospel. We see this in chapter 6, where the apostle makes the point that as ministers of the gospel, we 
put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Well, how do you do that, Paul? Verse 5, by great endurance in affliction, hardships, calamities. If you lived with a blind person, I suspect you would be very careful about leaving things lying around the house, lest by doing so you place an obstacle in the way and cause them to stumble. A few days ago, I got up in the night, and rather than turn on the light, I made my way through the house by memory, which served me well until my foot collided with a dumbbell that had been left lying on the floor. It was an obstacle, and my thoughts toward the one who left it there were, let's just say, not sanctified. But in this world, we are surrounded by blind people. We interact with them on the streets, in stores, over the phone, on Zoom calls. Do we put obstacles in front of them, or do we commend ourselves in every way as ministers of the gospel? The Lord gives us opportunities to commend ourselves by allowing trials, afflictions, hardships, and calamities. And when we endure those... It commends us as ministers of the gospel because the average person doesn't patiently endure through these things. So afflictions, hardships, and calamities are opportunities. We are passing through some of those things right now, losing our jobs, our income, our businesses, our fellowship with one another. How are we responding? Are we commending ourselves or are we by our actions putting obstacles in the way? But then the apostle gets more specific in beatings, imprisonments, and riots. The apostle had experienced all of these. Can you imagine the humiliation and pain of being beaten? And what about imprisonment? We think we're in prison now, but can you imagine being confined to a filthy cell for weeks and months, even years, with, no, with nothing to eat or little to eat or do, without seeing the light of day? What about riots? We're seeing this right now, very close to home, angry, out-of-control mobs intent on destroying and pillaging people's livelihoods. And there is labor, sleepless nights, and hunger. These are no doubt the consequences of Paul's unending care of the churches as he labored for their good. Some mothers in our congregation understand this better than any of us. Unending labor, a lack of sleep and hunger, maybe not for food, but for a change of atmosphere, a change of scenery, some adult conversation. These are things we chafe under. But when they are met with patient endurance, it shines a light through the inky darkness and points a lost world back to God. How important this is, especially at a time like this. Frustration is mounting in our city and in our streets. People are on edge. Tempers flare so easily. The average person doesn't know how to deal with this. But you do. With the power of the Holy Spirit, you see a bigger picture and draw the strength to endure. This puts you and me in a unique position to de-escalate the rising tensions and to be a voice of calm and reason during these troubled times. But are we help? But how are we helping if we are just as frustrated and angry as everyone else? How does it help if, rather than de-escalating things, we add to the tension by acting unwisely, railing and lashing out? In the days ahead, we're going to have to make decisions as a church as to how to respond to these ever-extending lockdowns. There are big questions that we must face. As elders, we are carefully and prayerfully considering what the Lord would have us to do. But one of our considerations will be that we not unnecessarily put an obstacle in the way that would mar our testimony. The neighbors in the community can see the plight of our church. 
and I suspect that there are some that miss our presence here and would like to see us back. And now they are watching us, watching to see how we react to this crisis, and how we react will either place an obstacle before them, or it will shine a light. As we prayerfully work through the next steps that we must take, let's not be so focused on what we cannot do that we fail to see the opportunities and the things that we can do. May we embrace with courage what we can change, and may we patiently endure what we cannot. And may God give us discernment to distinguish between what we are to attempt to change and what we are to patiently endure. As we do, I believe we will see that we have been given a unique opportunity to shine a light that will point a lost city to its only hope, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, let me close with this. Earlier, I told the story about the lower lights, the lights along the shore that had gone out in the Cleveland Harbor and the tragic loss of life as a result. When the hymn writer Philip P. Bliss heard that story, he sat down and wrote the words of this hymn. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore, but to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Dark the night of sin has settled, loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor struggling, fainting seamen, you may rescue, you may save. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank you that in your mercy, you allow the trials that afflict our lives in order to do your perfect will and produce in us the character that you are seeking to develop and to give us opportunities that we might not otherwise have had. Oh, may we, our God, at this dark time, may we shine the light that you have shed abroad in our hearts. May it shine out to a world that is in such need. For we ask this, our Father, in the precious and powerful name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share this content, but do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. For more resources, please visit ezrainstitute.ca.